When we think of the story of Christmas, no doubt there are two stories that come to mind most quickly. One is the story of the shepherds, and the other is the story of the wise men. And they're both stories of exceedingly great joy. But they're also well studies in contrast. Dramatic contrast. The shepherds on the night when Jesus' birth was announced were out in the field, as the text says in Luke chapter 2, watching their flocks by night. What we know about shepherds is that they were not a part of what you might call the high society. As a matter of fact, shepherds were on the lowest social rung of the ladder. You may remember an Old Testament reference to shepherds when Jacob's family, his sons, go to Egypt. And when they arrive in Egypt, even though Joseph, the next to youngest son, is really sort of like the vice regent of all of Egypt, even though he has that status, his brothers are shepherds. And it is said that they lived in Goshen, taking care of their flocks. Not just because that was a good place to graze sheep, but because the Pharaoh and Egyptian cultures looked down on shepherds and really had nothing to do with them except the fleecing of the sheep as brought to the palace. They were on the lower echelon of society. As a matter of fact, it was rather traditional that the youngest member of any given family would have been the shepherd in the family, the one who was least important, least significant, the baby. Remember the youngest member of Jesse's family? David, the shepherd. They were constantly on the move. They couldn't just stay in one place. They had to seek green pastures constantly for their sheep, which means they would be far, far away from home at times and often overnight living in the fields at night with their sheep, just, just like this story. And furthermore, they were dependent upon the weather. They lived in conditions that were uncertain. They were always susceptible to attacks not only from wild animals, but from thieves who would steal. On this particular night, if you look at the text, you'll notice that there were shepherds gathered together. It wouldn't have been uncommon, but it is interesting. In other words, there were multiple shepherds, probably with multiple flocks, all gathered together in one place, perhaps enjoying the evening, perhaps for safety, but for whatever reason, all gathered together on the hillside. The shepherd's life was a life of a needy individual, a lowly individual, and frequently a lonely individual. But the circumstances of that night, let's turn to that. Let's turn to their story. 
they were gathered together under the stars, which was not uncommon for them. They knew the constellations. They probably knew the constellations better than most people because they lived under them. If you've ever been in a place where the city lights don't obscure the night skies, you will see things that you never saw in the city. You'll see certain constellations, and whenever you have the opportunity to do that, if you're like me, you would be amazed by the fact that it's the same stars that Abraham saw, or David saw, or the shepherds saw. They knew the constellations by name. They knew the pattern by heart. And unlike most of us, on any given night, they looked up and they saw a shooting star across the horizon. They knew those night skies, but this night sky was a break from the ordinary, a terrifying break from the ordinary. They'd seen the constellations. They knew them inside and out. But when this break from the ordinary came, the constellations were obscured by the dramatic entrance of the divine. Imagine further, after their fear had subsided, after the angel said to them, don't fear, don't be afraid, I'm bringing you good news of great joy, which is for all people. After their fear had subsided, they, they went to find the Christ child. Let's go, they said, and find him. Did you ever wonder what that journey must have been like? How far away were they? It appears that they went that very night. They didn't wait till the next day. What time of the night was it? It clearly was dark. And let's suppose for a moment, will you, that they left as soon as they heard the news and traveled in that night and found the manger. What a hubbub. All those flock of sheep, they didn't leave them in the fields. They couldn't leave them in the fields. They took all of them on their journey. Bleeding sheep, can you imagine that it was quiet and noiseless? I can't. And this tiny town of Bethlehem, all these sheep descending on one particular location, what we would call a barn or an outdoor manger. It must have been quite an event. But before I move to the wise men, I want you to note something. They were utterly unprepared for this event. They never saw it coming. It came out of nowhere, so to speak, the skies. They experienced joy. On the other hand, we have a story of wise men, another description of a group of people who are quite in contrast to the shepherds. The wise men were among the cultural elites. The more study that's been done on who those mysterious wise men were uh, comes to some conclusions that I found rather fascinating as I looked this week. It's quite likely that they were from the kingdom of Parthia, which was on the eastern section of the Roman Empire. 
As a matter of fact, it was located in what we now consider to be modern Iraq or Iran, or portions of it. What's also very interesting is that we think of the Roman Empire as the dominant global empire, but this Roman Empire was never able to defeat the Parthenians. On the eastern front of the Roman Empire, they reigned supreme, and the Romans could not conquer them. As a matter of fact, a short time before we see these wise men come to Bethlehem, Actually, in that same region of Palestine, the Parthenians had invaded and taken over that section of the Roman Empire, and the Romans had to drive them out. Can you imagine the trepidation and fear of Herod when the wise men showed up? The wise men were no doubt uh, Parthenian. And most people speculate, and I think for very good reason, that they were Zoroastrian in terms of their religious background. Their religious founder, if we're correct by this, Zoroaster, was actually, it seems, now scholars debate dates, right? That's what PhD dissertations are made of, arguing about these things. But we think we think that the founder of Zoroastrianism was actually in Babylon at about the same time as Daniel during the 70-year Judean captivity. We don't know the details of their interaction with Daniel and his friends. But imagine for a moment, will you? Let's call it holy imagination that the founder of this foreign religion was in contact with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just maybe. Of course, this is hundreds and hundreds of years later. But given their status, they were priests who studied widely all the ancient books. And it's no doubt this has to be clear, that they had studied the Jewish prophecy books. Why else would they be so interested in the king of the Jews and the star that they followed? This elite group of priests were actually kingmakers, not politicians or kings themselves, but they were feared by the monarchy the elite. They read the stars. They made predictions concerning the rise and fall of empires. They had this spiritual power over empires. And they were feared and respected. That's who they were. Now, let's consider their story as in contrast to the story of the shepherds. In their story... Well, it's a story of discovery. The story of the shepherd is an experience out of nowhere. It probably took the wise men two years before they arrived to see the Christ child. It was a process 
called a journey. And it was a journey of discovery. They were seeking wisdom. I don't want to diminish the shepherds. But they weren't seeking wisdom in the field. They were watching their flocks. They were foreigners. They were from another religion. And when they found Jesus, they worshipped him. My theological curiosity jumps in here as well. What, what was their worship? Was it a symbolic gesture that they would have given to any royalty? Did they understand him? A piece that I, I want to insert right now that I didn't tell you earlier is that Zoroastrianism has some belief systems that are remarkably similar to what we know of today as Christian. Not the same across the board, but remarkably similar. They believed in one God. They had a cosmology of good and evil. And they had an eschatology. Cosmology just means the global world, everything. Eschatology means end times. They had an eschatology of the end times where evil would be destroyed by good and a savior would come. Here they are, worshiping Jesus. I wonder what it meant. Did they see him as the fulfillment of end time prophecies? I also wonder what happened to them. What became of them? Why don't we know their stories? Where did they go? Of course, we know they went back to their country, but I mean, really, where did they go? Those are a couple of contrasting stories, aren't they? A group of simple shepherds who were not on a journey. And God just came right into their presence. And a group of men who were wealthy scholars compared to poor shepherds who were on a quest for knowledge. The shepherds, actually they were insiders. They were a part of the Jewish establishment. They too, though perhaps even illiterate, would have expected the coming of the Messiah. The wise men, they were outsiders of another religion, similar but different. And one group, the shepherds, they experienced joy. In a moment, unexpectedly, God was upon them. And the wise men, they discovered joy. It took them a long time to find it, but they found it. Those stories, uh, I want to suggest, are something like us. I want to suggest that both of those stories 
are equally important because I want to suggest that perhaps both of those stories say something about the way we experience God and we experience joy. My wife is an educator, and when I listen to her and other educators talk about education, I learn a lot about learning styles. And I realize that some learners are auditory learners. They, they learn by listening. That's their primary way of learning. I realize that other People are visual learners. That's their primary way of taking in information or that they're tactile learners. They actually learn with their hands and they see things and can manipulate things with their hands that none of the rest of us could see without an instruction manual or perhaps even with the instruction manual we couldn't see it. They're learners that way. Of course, there's also those learners who are really boring like me. That's what my wife said, that I'm really boring. <laughs> I, I learned this way. Oh, not exclusively, but I learned this way. I want to suggest that these two stories remind us that we ought to learn in multiple ways. For those of you who are, and I don't mean this in a demeaning way, emotional, emotive, experiential learners, God bless you. I realize that you probably get more out of Sunday morning when we're singing than you do when I'm preaching. I understand that, and it's okay. For those of you who are like text learners, people who are more, let's say, academic, who love to uncover and discover, I thank God for you because I understand you. <laughs> but I thank God for you because you're equally important. But I think what I want to counsel us as the church to do is to lean on the other, to experience the other, and have a full understanding of grace. God comes to us unexpectedly and experiences, sometimes that defy logic, but it's true. God comes to us in discovery. And as you would expect, I really think it's important to study the Word and books and philosophy and science and psychology and business and law. I think it's incredibly important we need both, but we shouldn't fear either. We shouldn't make the other diminished in our own eyes because they're equally important. Nor should we fear discovery in learning. 
We certainly don't want to limit God in terms of our learning styles. We know God comes to us in a variety of ways. There's a, a book by Eugene Peterson written a number of years ago entitled Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. I want to read you just a portion. He says, We wake up each morning to a world that we did not make. How did we get here? How did we come to be? We open our eyes and see the old bowling ball of a sun careening over the horizon. We wiggle our toes. A mockingbird takes off and improvises on themes set down by robins and wrens, and we marvel at the intricacies. The smell of frying bacon works its way into our nostrils, and we began anticipating buttered toast and scrambled eggs and coffee freshly brewed from our, our favorite java beans. Man, I love that description. Every morning. <laughs> Every morning. There's so much here, he says. Around, above, below, inside, outside. Even with the help of poets and scientists, we can account for very little of it. We notice this, then that. We start exploring the neighborhood. What an image. We start exploring the neighborhood. We try this street and then that one. We venture across the tracks and before long we're looking out through telescopes and down into microscopes, curious, fascinated by this endless proliferation of sheer isness, color and shape and texture and sound. And after a while, after a while, we just get used to it and quit noticing. We get narrowed down into something small and constricting. Somewhere along the way, this exponential expansion of awareness this wide-eyed looking around, this sheer untaught delight in what is here reverses itself. The world contracts. We are reduced to a life of routine through which we sleepwalk. You can see multiple applications there, right? I want to suggest that we especially during this Advent season keep our eyes and our hearts wide open because Christ comes to us in multiple places and in multiple ways. By the way, that's why I don't fear science or philosophy or any other discipline. Because as a Christ follower, if I keep my eyes wide open, I'll see Jesus somewhere that's unexpected and the truth will emerge in a dramatically new and even deeper way. So don't stop 
believing. Don't stop experiencing. Don't stop discovering because Christ is everywhere. Let's pray. Lord, the delight we feel like the shepherds is remarkable. This is a discovery we've made through a quest to understand can sometimes be an overwhelming epiphany. And then, Lord, we're, we're quite confident that even if we believe in the importance of experience and in the importance of discovery, we know, Lord, that in the, the process of days, we turn the beauty into routine reality. And we miss you. So, Lord, as we study wherever we are, as we experience in whatever circumstance. Keep our eyes of faith wide open so that we can see you. And when seeing you, love you more deeply and follow you more completely. These things we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.